That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Tom. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, Tom? It's a lovely day in London today. It's a wonderful, though one of those days that you really think sometimes winter's worth going through. It's crystal clear skies. I'm sitting in the, in the room with the windows, bring, you know, the sun's coming through and heating everything up. Don't even need to turn the heating on during the day. So this is... This is my kind of wintry day. How about you, Ben? Yeah, much the same here. Much the same here. I've um, I've just finished reading a, a a pretty good book, Robert Harris's book, Second Sleep, uh, that I, I finished reading with breakfast this morning, and it's it's set in a sort of future dark age after the collapse of uh, of, of technology. So those th- thoughts are just sort of percolating in my mind at the moment, and I'm trying to work out if we've got enough room in our garden to uh, to turn it into uh, subsistence farming. And uh, we very much do not. So I think if technology were to collapse, we are we are done for. So you've been reading dystopian novels over your scrambled eggs, by the sounds of it. Yeah, thoughts that will linger. Thoughts that will, thoughts linger. That will linger. Well, it's good. I mean, I think you try and read uh, a book a week, or, or or is good at not fifty-two books. I think last year, but it was in its thirties, wasn't it, Ben? Yeah, not quite a book a week. I know lots of people do that. I see lots of people on Twitter who who sort of swear by that. But I think the trouble with that is it creates incentive then to read short books to sort of artificially boost your numbers. So I um I think just trying to read regularly throughout the week is is fine, and sort of carving out little moments uh, of your day is uh, is the way to do it. And regardless of whether it's a book a week or a book a month, I think that's uh, that's that's a pretty good way of, uh, of going about it. But I think we can probably stick with the theme of dystopia, Tom, can't we? With um, an item that was in the Daily Mail over the weekend. So the Free Speech Union has been sending off freedom of information requests to various public bodies and organisations to try and get a hold of their policies on uh, transgender staff, gender critical staff. We often find interesting things in uh, maternity policies, that sort of thing. Um, and one of the bodies which we've sent freedom of information requests to was the information commissioner's office. Uh, This is the watchdog charged with ensuring that people's data is not uh, misheld or misused, that people's data privacy rights are respected. So bear that in mind as I describe what, what they have been saying in their trans policy. Because in that policy, they say that staff at the information commissioner's office, the ICO, should start thinking of tra- the trans person they work with, their trans colleagues, as, and I quote, being the gender that they want you to think of them as. So in other words, if you have a trans colleague, it's not enough that you're polite or tolerant to them. The ICO is saying that their employees should think of that colleague as being their new gender, which is an absurd thing, I think, for any business or quango or government body or whatever to insist on or or suggest but particularly for the information commissioner's office it is quite astonishing isn't it ben and there's a little snapshot of the uh, ico guidance which uh, 
it sits in this Daily Mail article and it is there in black and white, as you say. It's essentially, it's not, I guess it's not thought crime, it's thought control. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they um, how they expect to police this thought control and to understand what is going on in your head, Ben, and what is going on in my head. They're not going to find very much going on in my head. I can absolutely assure them of that. However, it is profoundly ironic that this is coming from the watchdog for privacy, as Toby Young, our our boss, General Secretary of the Free Speech Union, has said in the same article, the ICO is supposed to be responsible for protecting people's privacy. How can it be taken seriously in that role if it's dictating to its employees what they can and can't think? It's thought control. It's, it, it is absolutely the most private place that we have is our heads, is our brains, is what goes on in our heads. And yet the ICO is saying, oh, no, this is how you need to think. It is. I, I just wonder sometimes, Ben, whether these organizations are aware of the self-contradictory nature of what they are set up to do, what they are set up to protect, and then what they ask of employees and others, sometimes it's customers and clients, sometimes it's suppliers. They ask these things because of the ideology of, of our age, the zeitgeist, that has found its, it's rooted itself in these organizations. And, and these contradictions, logic has been thrown out the window. Uh, coherency has been thrown out the window. It's very frustrating for those of us who like to look at things logically. <laughs> it just doesn't fit together. Well, you know, my theory of how institutions in modern Britain work is uh, something I've adapted is working towards the woke and that the staff mm -hmm. of bodies like the ICO or the management uh, of the ICO uh, are working towards what they anticipate the demands of woke activists to be. Uh, and in that, they're gold plating the Equality Act. They're going far beyond what the law requires. They're failing to strike the balance between trans employees uh, and their rights and the rights of gender critical employees. Um, I mean, so some of the stuff in the the trans policy that that we've got via FOI from the Information Commissioner's Office um, is the kind of language that we find all over the place. So it goes on to say that staff should be, this is a direct quote again, be guided by your trans colleague and their preferences um, and that, quote, you must call a person by their chosen or preferred name, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there's a gradation of things. I, I think personally that... Um, asking you to address somebody by their legal name if they've changed it is reasonable because you can call somebody a male by a female name. It doesn't require that you believe that they have changed their gender. It just requires that you address them by their legal name. Uh, so you might think, well, that's a man's name and you're a woman or vice versa. Um, but it doesn't require you, I think, to manifest a belief. Whereas asking you to address somebody by different pronouns, I think is asking you, uh, is compelling you to engage in a speech act to express a belief that you you don't hold. Um, so I think there's probably a difference there, Tom. I don't know. Do you, do you disagree with that? Or does that sound, does that sound reasonable? Well, I, I think it sounds reasonable. We're talking about a workplace here. So we're talking about yeah. every workplace has a code of conduct and an expectation of its employees. And if legally, um, both the employer actually has a has a, a role to play there in upholding the legal rights of its employees and their new name, I think I think that's right. But 
when it comes to compelled speech, I think it's a bit more yeah. of a gray area. Um, but I think the issue is, of course, that it's just the bullet before is about how you think as you know, if you are not the transgender person, you're just a colleague, it's asking about how you think. So it's it's all oriented towards this sort of, the, everything orbits around the member of the group, in this case, the transgender group. And we all orbit around that. And there are elements of that. You think, well, that's fine. We're all subject to gravity. Fine. But why should you be a planet and I'm I'm a moon? You know, I, I can't we both be planets? Can't we both have our rights and sit in this gravitational space? Um, look at me going into this rather strange analogy. But you know, why why should I why should I have to be a moon? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Why should why should everything revolve around the rights of one group when there are many groups of people and many individuals who each have their own rights and requirements and so on yeah i I get that completely and i quite like that analogy because what you find is that actually everything's rotating around everything else which is how life works we all navigate around each other around our needs around our preferences and that's how we navigate through life and and the other example i draw out of this ico transgender guidance is the last bullet seems again to make this asymmetric point we're going to treat one group like this and the other because having said we're going to we're going to insist you need or expect that you should think of the person as their new gender for those also dealing with or, or trying to work their way around transgender people in the office the guidance says respect people's privacy so do not mm. ask what their real or their birth name is and so that's Again, the privacy watchdog, they're saying respect people's privacy. Having said, by the way, this is how you should think. So there's a lot of inconsistency in the guidance that we got through this Freedom of Information uh, request. And um, it just makes one's mind boggle, doesn't it, Ben, that we are two years, maybe three years now post uh, Forstarter, who's quoted later mm-hmm. in, the, in the article, actually, Maya Forstarter, who established in the Equality Act, that um, gender-critical views are are protected. This lack of balance in the application uh, of the Equality Act and of the protected characteristics within the Equality Act is still out there, and it's endemic still. There's so much of this stuff, and we, we see it from sometimes people contact us to raise the alarm about something that's going on in their workplace, uh, or a breach of civil service impartiality. Uh, sometimes, as in this case, we get it via freedom of information requests. Um, and so I, for my sins, have to spend a lot of time reading this sort of guff. Um, but this one really did stand out for the requirement or the suggestion that, that you should think in a certain way. Uh, that's so far beyond even the loopiest stuff that we, we've seen elsewhere in this area. Um, and there's some stuff further on in this article about uh, the energy watchdog, Ofgem, um, which says that it has an overarching focus on intersectionality. Now, you'd think that the energy regulator might have bigger things to worry about uh, at the moment than intersectionality, but they say basically this is the heart of everything that we do, which is completely extraordinary. And I think that's a very good example of, um, of what you were just describing, Tom, where you have this um, th- this institutional capture where institutions are working towards the woke rather than working towards their 
their core purpose, the central mission for which they're actually established, uh, that they're pursuing this sort of ideological mission uh, that's starting to colour all of their activity. Um, and I think Ofgem saying that intersectionality is its overarching focus uh, is the best possible example of that trend that, that you could find. Um, and then there's other stuff as well in the ICO guidance about um, the menopause and saying that that is something that happens to uh, every woman and some trans men, trans women and non-binary people. So we're going to come on to talk about misinformation later on in this episode. And that, that's a prime example of it. Um, but, you know, it's so frustrating for people I speak to who are dealing with this in their workplace. It's all over the shop. And, um, uh, you know, I speak to a lot of people, friends and, and such like who who don't come across this as much and uh, or indeed friends who do come across it who said we must surely be past now the moment of peak ideological capture transgender ideological capture looking at the stats yeah. over the weekend and we'll, when i when i kind of finalize our stats our free speech union stats you know transgender cases has crept up constantly 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 and we're now up at 40 percent ben 40 percent of our cases so four out of ten of what comes into our inbox relates in some way to transgender ideology to pronouns uh some of those are just queries or notifications but you know that that that's not far off 50 percent. i mean we are we are hopefully we're at peak craziness on this ideology but it's still so showing no sign of let up and my analogy with this has always been when when an organize when an organization or or even the, you know in warfare when a country knows that it's it's beat when it knows it's lost then that sometimes leads to the most ferocious fighting back it leads to a lot yeah. of blood being spilt the the, the, the old uh, the best example is the time between d-day and VE Day, some of the bloodiest battles uh, across Europe were fought, and yet Germany knew it was beaten. I mean, the the where was the steel being produced? Where were the where were the armaments coming from? Uh, you had the Russians coming in on the east. You had the Allies coming in on the west, and yet the generals, the German generals, were just pushing, pushing, pushing. Don't give an inch of ground. Don't give an inch of ground. The bloodiest fighting comes when you know you've lost. So maybe we're in that. Maybe we're in that phase. On uh, on that note, if I could recommend a book, uh, Ian Kershaw's book, The End, is fantastic. Oh, it's very, it's grim, but it but it's fantastically interesting. Um, and I, it's years ago that I read this, but but I remember uh, descriptions of uh, German civil servants meeting in some ministry somewhere, talking about the most prosaic things, as if the war wasn't happening in you know January nineteen forty five, and they're they're sort of carrying on almost as normal. Uh, well, I hope that 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 prophecy doesn't come true, Tom. But I, I suspect um, I suspect that's right. There's every danger that um, this this could all become more vicious. Uh, but the flip side of that is that if it does become more vicious and uh, the online stuff becomes even more feral than it has been, at least employers increasingly uh, are on notice that they have to, uh, and regulators as well. We, we haven't mentioned the case of Rachel Mead, who was in the news last week mm. um, with, with another very important victory. Um, so, so at least employers know that they are on notice in this area and employees know that they have um, that they have some protection. But I, I think, and we've talked about this many times before, 
my fundamental frustration um, is that we have got ourselves in a position where your beliefs are only protected once a judge has decided or a panel of judges have decided that they are worthy of respect in a democratic society. They passed the Granger test. That's what Forstatter achieved. Um, and that if they don't if, if they don't meet that test, if they can't be crammed into that religion and belief category of the Equality Act, um, then your right to express your views is basically non-existent as it relates to your employment. So you have protection from the state silencing you. Um, but if your employer doesn't like what you're saying and a judge hasn't decided that what you're saying passes that test, um, you're in a really difficult situation. And that's a that's a terrible, terrible position for um, the United Kingdom to have, to have got itself into um, and contrary to our legal history and so on and our tradition. But I also think there's something in the cultural oxygen where you almost got two kinds of cultural experience that people have. I mean, I talk about some of the regulators I've come across in my financial world, and I still keep up with quite a few people in that world. And there's no doubt that for a lot of them, when they see things like what we spoke about last week, the Karl Borgneal case, which was indeed in the financial world, a lot of the reaction is, well, yes, that happened and that training went very badly wrong or that incident happened and that, you know, Carl was quite right to get um, recompense for what happened. But that's the exception, not the rule. That's no reason to throw out EDI. That's no reason to throw out equity, diversity and inclusion, which is in essence a good thing. And I think that's a lot of the approach that we have from very reasonable, very thoughtful people who are not living this 24-7. They're getting on with their day jobs most of the time. And then you've got yeah. kind of the rest of us, anyone coming into our casework, who realizes it's the other way around. And actually, that's just the tip of the iceberg that we see because Carl had to go through the you know, dreadful process of going through in a tribunal, appealing, not being believed, all of that effect. And we know that's the tip of the iceberg. And actually, there are a bunch of people who, who, who suffer in silence. And really, what we should be saying is that equity, diversity, inclusion as an industry has failed. And we do need to throw it out without, but when we do do that, when we get to that day and we throw out all of that sort of wrong ideological capture that's happened, we need to hold on to our core principles of equality, yeah. of fairness. And that's how we would look at it. And so you've got these two groups, both full of very reasonable people, but who are in a very different place. And I think that's the challenge, is to persuade the people who are living their lives and think there's lots of good in it, that actually it's that's not where we are. This industry has been captured by quite horrible oppressor-oppressive, uh, sorry, oppressor-oppressed ideology and that's the challenge right? yeah yeah I, I i see that so sort of uh, reaching out to naive neutrals who who haven't had any reason to get engaged with thinking through what the consequences are of edi in its contemporary manifestation its contemporary form but naive neutrals are in power that's the problem yeah i think that's right well we should move on um to talk 
we got a little piece that we we thought we might come to uh, about, as you've mentioned and, and given a bit of a teaser on, Ben, about information and disinformation, this topic that we keep coming back to um, again and again for all sorts of reasons, because it does clearly relate to free speech, that uh, what's labelled disinformation or misinformation matters because it's treated in different ways by social media companies and such. But what what caught my eye this week is a new book uh, by Andreas Krieg. He's associate professor in the School of Security Studies at King's College London. And he's written a new book called um, Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of of Narratives. And it's certainly going on to my book list, Ben. It looks fascinating. Uh, and it's there was it was reviewed this week as well um, by various people in the media, and essentially the the question at heart is when does truth become disinformation? What is truth in effect? And of course, many of us have asked that question over the last few years. It's pretty fundamental to what we believe. It's pretty fundamental uh, to how we believe uh, to how we behave. And one of the articles I read. Um, uh, a trip to quoted Voltaire on this, who says that anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. As ever, Voltaire and the great minds of the past really get to the nub of the issue. So anyone that can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. That jumped out of one of the reviews and is right at the heart of what this book is is addressing. We are being made to believe absurdities, the narratives that we are being asked to to hold on to and not challenge as well. And and that's the other point that's drawn out um, in this book, is that how do you challenge a narrative uh, in the current environment where free speech is being challenged, uh, where free speech is is on the line, really? And uh, the author goes back to what was used in the Soviet Union, uh, and how disinformation campaigns were run in the Soviet Union, uh, and uh, lists the four Ds. Dismiss the critic, distort the facts, distract from the main issue, and dismay the audience. And we have seen that, haven't we, Ben? And we talk about the, the mainstream media, we've talked about the BBC, we've talked about all sorts of situations where the first thing that happens is you dismiss the critic. The person who comes with the counter-narrative is not quite signed up to the right narrative, is dismissed. Then they say, well, actually, I've got some facts here. I've got some truths that we need to bring to the table. Distort them. Oh, you're only far right, or you're only far left. You, know, you, you kind of put this you, you, instead of the opposite of a um, something that shimmers, you put this shadow, don't you, around what they're bringing to the table. This doubt creeps into your mind with what they're, they're, they're bringing to the table when you distort them or when the people in power distort the facts. Then you distract from the main issue. So, oh, you're saying this. That must therefore mean you're, that over here you're saying that. And that is, you know, no one would want to think that. And then finally, dismay the audience, turn the audience against you and, uh, and, and make them realize, no, no, we can't have this. That really, I found quite striking. I'm definitely going to get this book. But it also made me think, Ben, um, when we're talking about disinformation, when we're talking about misinformation and those tactics that are used by the powerful 
to dismiss, to distort, to distract, and to dismay. That's quite difficult to say, but to dismiss, to distort, to distract, to dismay, I got there. Um, it just reminded me, again, of the post office. I almost feel like that there's a moment we need to talk about the post office. and We need to talk about this um, post office scandal that's come to light and how it is that some 25 years after it started, it's actually taken an ITV documentary drama to bring it to the consciousness of the nation that so many in power over the years, and this has been, you know, people have been asking for apologies and such like, but I think it's like standing back from that and saying, whoever was in power, it seems like they were just doing this so very, they were dismissing the critic, they were distorting the facts, they were distracting, and they were dismaying. And it's taken 25 years now for this drama to bring it to light and just the horror of it, the horror. And so I heard something quite interesting said over the weekend about, well, why didn't anyone listen to these people? Because they weren't important people in the sense of they weren't powerful. They weren't, they weren't interesting people um, in the sense that the powerful understand interesting. They were just ordinary people in ordinary places doing an ordinary job who were at the wrong end of the power dynamic and at the wrong end of the power spectrum. And they were at the mercy of the facts, as in inverted commas, as the post office deemed them to be. And so this whole idea of disinformation and misinformation, I think, really does roll into the post office scandal and horror. I mean, it's a post office horror. It's not even a scandal. It's an utter yeah. horror. People have lost their lives. They've taken their own lives because of it. And now they've died before they can get compensation. So I felt it would be an interesting point at which to say, we need to talk about the post office and it's linked to free speech. Well, I think the, the post office victims are some of the earliest victims of the age of the machine and the extent to which those in authority seem to have delegated their thinking, both to people like them and to blind trust that machines, algorithms, technology are more reliable, which in this case has proven catastrophically not true. I mean, the, the point about the success of this drama is I, I think that in itself shows the power of narratives and storytelling. And the, the facts of this case have been available for, for some time, but it, but it has taken somebody packaging this up into an easily digestible form on television for it really to, um, to strike a chord in the, in the way that this, this drama has. Um, I think I've not read the, the book you mentioned, Subversion, that's what it's called, isn't it? Strategic Weaponization yeah, of Narrative. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I've not read it. I don't know the author, so I, I can't I can't speak about it at all in any detail. But the the idea of um, well, what what occurred to me while you were speaking about it was that our society is one that is uniquely vulnerable to people who are malign storytellers, people who can tell a story in a convincing way, um, and who can wrap up their personal ideological convictions um, in empathetic language in a way that strikes a chord with people's best instincts. And I think the the trans campaign 
has been the preeminent example of that. Um, but it's it's a complete a post-religious society, a post-Christian society is a complete ideological free-for-all. Um, and at the moment, it's constrained by the afterglow of Christianity. And so there's still a sense that um, we need to have an interest in what um, in protecting people from harm and what those harms might be. And so we see that language when we're talking about online safety and online harms. We see that in the trans debate when people are talking about protecting a vulnerable community of people from harm and the importance of being kind. So it's all still framed in a post-Christian world. But I think there are signs that we're, we're entering a post-Christian world. And what I mean, mean by that is that we're entering a world where um, those requirements, that, that residual deference to Christian thinking is fading away. And I think we we are heading to a point where actually protecting people from harm, protecting the vulnerable, um, these Christian and post-Christian virtues are not going to be factors in the way in which people think about politics or how society should be organised. Um, and I think there are all sorts of signs of that already. And from what I've seen of of post, post-Christian politics, I, I can't say I care for it very much. Um, and so it, in the free-for-all that, that exists, that's, that's only becoming wilder, um, the, the power of somebody who comes along with a plausible set of facts arranged into a really compelling story, um, I think their power is, is effectively unlimited if, if they can reach an audience. Um, and that can be for good or for ill. So the post office drama has shown the positive, constructive force of that ability. Um, and I would argue that the, the trans rights campaign is the inverse. Yes, I think that the subversion, the book, describes itself uh, as an examination of how malicious state and non-state actors take advantage of the information space to sow political chaos. In, in this instance, but I mean, it almost remove the political and put chaos. Um, and that idea of information space, I think is exactly what, what you're talking about there. You know, the, no one understood transgender ideology 10 years ago. There was no, there was, it was just a vacuum. It's just a space. So it's been filled with a very particular version and a very specific outworking of the issues around what transgender people need. And we've forgotten, I guess, at root, that there are some very vulnerable people in society who need protecting. But the narrative that's flown flowed into that vacuum has been very destructive. Uh, and as you say, I think the information space around the post office, people haven't been aware of just how deep-rooted the state opposition to to bringing justice was over such a sustained period of time. That information space has now been filled as a result of this fantastic documentary series and the the, 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 the incredible response, which is going to have a political effect on this whole year, I think, which we don't yet fully appreciate yeah. or understand. Or It's going to be very interesting to track through. But that idea of a, of a sp information space as well, I think, is 
brings us back to just how profound the information revolution is that we are going through and have gone through. I remember when we had the old dial-up internet and that whole badoing, badoing, badoing noise, which a few of us remember mm. and actually rather rather miss. Like, you know, that meant that I was going to be on the internet within the next <laughs> two or three days, probably, maybe. Um, <laughs> yes. And I didn't believe then that you could have wireless um, people people said you don't need your wires you can just buy your modem as it was and put it in the corner and that was witchcraft that was witchcraft the first time i heard that i i burnt the person who told me because i thought they must be a witch anyhow um this is an information revolution and there is a lot to be gained from looking back in time at former information revolutions and saying they were times of profound positive change for societies, but very culturally discomforting for those who was prior to that very um, confident of where their place was in society. And the fact that this information started flowing in new ways created jams of information, too much going in that, and empty and empty areas of information. So I think that this information age that started off so optimistically has turned into something that is, well, it is a revolution. Revolutions are uncomfortable and revolutions are discomforting. So yeah, it touches on a lot of things we've already spoken about, I think. It's not, it's the spread of information is one part of it, but it but it's also the spread of a uh, of memes, and I don't mean the funny pictures we all share with each other. Mm. I mean um, ideas and concepts and ways of thinking about things. Um, and <clears throat> there was the trend, wasn't there, before Christmas, of lots of uh, youngsters in their twenties in America sharing TikTok videos praising Bin Laden's writings. Um, and that's the kind of phenomenon that, that, of course, would be completely impossible without the internet. Um, it, it allows for the incredibly rapid um, transmission of bilge. Um, and I, I think what we see in our casework at the Free Speech Union is the revolutionary boot being trampled on ordinary members of the public in all sorts of different walks of life. Um, and the imposition of this new, still post-Christian moral system uh, on people. But to go back to what I was saying before, at the moment, all of this stuff is still couched in recognisable terms about protecting people from harm and so on. Um, but I think we're seeing it transition, to use an unfortunate word, um, into being couched in terms of this is the future, you're the past, we're right, you're wrong. And it's it's no longer couched in post-Christian language. It's it's moving beyond that, I think. But maybe I spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> Which I still have avoided, Ben. I, I can't um, tell you how pleased I am to uh, yet to suffer the, uh, the, the day-to-day uh, onslaught of Twitter. But... Um, yeah, I, I, and on that point, I think it is very important, certainly at the individual level, to step back from the social media world, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. The days when I do that I, uh, are my happier days, when it's just a simple walk outside yeah. and, and not engaging yeah. 
with this stuff, not worrying worrying about it and realizing I'm just a small dot and that I don't need to worry about everything that is going on in the world. I can get on with just ordinary, simple things and passing the day with people. And that certainly helps me. But I do talk, I mean, I just recently I spoke to, to someone who's in his 20s and was absolutely, and this is going to make me sound like a very old person, Ben, but I was absolutely overwhelmed with the reductionist view. We, we were talking about uh, colonialization. We, see, we managed to get onto colonialism and the empire and various things, but it was this indoctrination, uh, one-dimensional perspective on it. And I said, well, what about, you know, what about Wilberforce and how do you, and he just looked at me blankly as I mentioned key people from the early yeah, 19th yeah, century yeah. and key things that had happened. And none of it, none of it was, was in his consciousness. And, you know, he was a good guy. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying anything other than, other than I wish he'd, he'd been given a broader perspective through his twenties about you've got this side of the argument, you've got that side of the argument. And he was then allowed to think his way through all the information that's now hitting him on social media in a what I would think is a better way. As I say, it's going to make me sound very old, but it's the old-fashioned learning how to think and realizing there are two sides to every historical story and um, contemporary story. I think it's the mentality of seeing the arrival of Empire Windrush as being like the year zero of modern Britain and everything before that being a dark age. Mm. Isn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, it, it was astonishing. Um, just the, you know, we, we talk a lot about various historical figures, don't we? You talk about uh, the the founding fathers of America. We've talked about Nelson. We talk about the later Roman emperors. Now, we don't do that for no reason. We do that because they're fascinating, they're interesting, they're rich, but they're facing circumstances and situations and problems that resonate with every age, including our own. Yeah. We're not unique. And we don't change. People don't evolve. I mean, I'm, of course, we do evolve. I, I'm a believer in Charles Darwin. I fully believe in Charles Darwin. But evolution is something that happens over millions and millions of years, if I understand it correctly. And it doesn't happen between 1965 and 2025. You know, oh, I can't. It always makes me feel when people say, oh, is this still happening in 2025? I think, do you really think that humanity is changing at such a rate and that it's only ever progress that that makes sense to say that in this year, somehow we're in a new, as you say, a new year zero and that suddenly all the bad stuff has gone and it can only be good stuff. So, yeah. I, I, I think uh, that sense of progress, that sense of time, and that 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 sense of evolution uh, is kind of a bit warped in this information age. Can I end us on a uh, optimistic note, Tom? Oh, do do please do, Ben. So um, just say, just say we're not raging too much at the youth of today. <laughs> speaking, you to, are the youth uh, of today, Ben. By the speaking... way. <laughs> Well, I don't, just 32 count listeners can decide. Um, but speaking to university students who have applied to our McTaggart program for grants, um, they are hugely impressive. So do not 
give up mm. hope entirely. Uh, there are some very impressive young people at universities now who are pushing back against all of this stuff in their own way, using different language than perhaps uh, I or older generations would. Uh, and perhaps sometimes for different reasons or with a different sensibility. Um, but nonetheless, they are within a tradition of small L liberal political thought that is recognizable. Um, so don't give up hope completely. That is really positive. It reminds me of the battle of ideas as well. The lovely weekend we had in October yeah. was another wonderfully positive Yeah. Uh, weekend and we actually recorded straight after that both you and i were at the battle of ideas but there were so many young people there full of energy full of beans full of um enlightenment values i remember baroness claire fox at the beginning of the weekend saying now remember everybody you're going to hear things you don't agree with and that's great you're going to make you, you're going to hear things that make you feel uncomfortable yeah. and that's fantastic Enjoy it. That's what thinking is. That's what ideas are. And that's why this is the battle of ideas. So I agree. We saw that at the battle of ideas. We're seeing that in our applications to the McTaggart program. And yeah, there's lots to be positive about. So uh, that's a great note on which to end, Ben. There we are. Well, goodbye. And uh, you'll hear from us next time. And do write in, as always, if you have any uh, comments or thoughts or suggestions. Uh, if you've loved it, if you've hated it, if you found it indifferent, we'd love to hear from you. We would. Tom, any final words? Have a lovely week, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>